0: Morning. My name is Eric, and uh, I'm going to be reading in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 25. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like, uh, or in the Bible app, uh, or on the screen. Beginning in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, "'who put darkness for light and light for darkness, "'who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. "'Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes "'and shrewd in their own sight. "'Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine "'and valiant men in mixing strong drink, "'who acquit the guilty for a bribe "'and deprive the innocent of his right. "'Therefore, as a tongue of fire devours the stubble "'and as dry grass sinks down in the flame,' So their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this his anger had not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Thanks, Eric.
1: So, I grew up with two sisters. I was a middle child, so I have a sister that's older than me, and a sister that's younger. And somewhere in my uh, early teenage years, or probably preteen, uh, we had an in-ground pool installed in our backyard. And uh, there's many of stories I can share about the in-ground pool, most of which involve me doing some really idiotic things. Everything ranging from involving a roof, to you name it, and uh, there was one time in particular, though, where I grabbed the the skimmer, and we had a, a kind of a, an aluminum rod. Uh, it was you know, not like the big round ones, but a little bit more narrow and uh, had a skimmer at the end of it. And I was cleaning off the pool and my younger sister, Jenny, was jumping around and she had like um, these uh, goggles on. If you remember like the old school goggles that you could dive with, you can still use them for like snorkels, but most people dive with like real small goggles now. But she had the full glass thing. That'll be important in a moment. Um, She was kind of jumping around and I had this uh, amazing idea that this skimmer could function kind of like, I don't know, like a harpoon. Like maybe I could just sort of throw it and maybe hit her with it. And so I couldn't really think of a a good reason to do that and her be willing except to maybe convince her that it would be a game. And so I said, you know, why don't we play Eskimo? And she's like, how do you play Eskimo? I was like, well, you jump around like a whale and I throw this harpoon at you. (laughs) And she was like, "Okay," and um, and so she jumped around, and I just started whipping this thing at her. And a couple times, it you know was a little difficult to throw at first to kind of get the feel of. Um, all the time, very enjoyable. I was a great brother, and. Uh, and so there's this one time in particular, she starts jumping in and out of the water and she's jumping to and fro and uh, we're just having a good old time and I'm just rifling this harpoon at her. Um, never occurred to me that she could potentially get hurt in the midst of this. And so one time um, she comes up out of the water, she may, have, may not have been speaking, I don't really recall, that'll be important too. Uh, I throw this harpoon skimmer at her and uh, it hits her right in the goggles. And the goggles crack open and the thing is sticking out of her mask. And she starts screaming and she's holding this thing and blood starts coming out of this mask. It was horrifying. Horrifying. <laughs> So anyway, this morning, I'll be <laughs> preaching, I just wanted to share that story, right? Great. No, there, there's a point. And so my older sister, Valerie, <laughs> comes running out of the sliding glass door because she, Jenny is screaming. And Valerie comes out and she looks, she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And she turns around, she goes, dad, Claude tore Jenny's eyeball out. And she just starts screaming. There's a stick hanging out of her head. There's, there's, there's a metal bar through her brain. Like she's saying all these things and she's running into the house. I'm like, wow, we are overselling what's happening. And then I'm thinking, does she see her eye? And I'm kind of looking around the pool and I'm like, is it in her brain? I'm not sure. And so uh, the whole time, I'm just like kind of locked up and I'm like, oh, it's okay. Like, how do you tell somebody that's okay? I can't see anything. All I see is blood. I'm like, you're all right. And uh, so my mom and dad come out. And of course, I can't even imagine, especially now that I'm a parent, I can't imagine what they were thinking and feeling as they saw this scene. And so uh, to put your mind at ease a little bit, um, I missed her. And uh, it, it hit the goggles and it was like plexiglass, they're like plexiglass, so it broke and the plexiglass cut right beneath her eye, thank God, right here. And uh, so she ended up with uh, some butterflies and, and they were able to not even, I don't even really notice a scar now. Uh, no, I really don't. I wanna like put this picture up in Jenny's. Ah, What's my fault. Let's play Eskimo. I'm like, let's play Hunter now run. No, anyway, no, we didn't do anything like that, as if I have to say that. Um, So she cut her eye, like beneath her eye, and the the plexiglass cut her, and so she was holding that just completely out of fear. It was stuck in her goggles. She didn't understand, so it was not actually stuck in her brain or anything like that. Her eye was intact. All of those things, as as we kind of notice as things kind of calm down, and so Um, the, the reason why I kind of share the story is because, um, my dad kind of sits us down and, uh, we're back from the hospital and, uh, and he's like, I just, I just need to know because I'm calm enough now. That's (laughs) why my dad's going to (laughs) talk. I'm calm enough now. And so I just need to know what happened. What in the world happened? And so I'm like, well, and he goes, no, 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 before you speak. You did not throw that intentionally at your sister, did you? Like, that is such an interesting question. Well, the funny thing is, Dad, there's nothing funny about this. Okay, right. Um, So it accidentally came out of my hand. We were, I was playing and I accidentally let it go. So I did not intentionally throw that at her. And Jenny's like, we were playing a game, he was throwing at me repeatedly. (laughs) Correct. And what I mean by that is I was throwing it prior, and that time I didn't mean to. And then I literally start trying to like, (laughs) lean into the logic of the situation. Dad, come on, could I hit those goggles if I was aiming for them? I mean, it's a skimmer. What are the chances of me from 10 feet away, being able to hit that intentionally? I can't hit the broad side of a barn with a harpoon. My goodness. (laughs) And, um, And so I'm trying to, to try to recreate what actually happened, giving myself a lot of benefit. And so then Jenny starts to recreate the story By saying, we were playing a game, she was jumping out, she had agreed to do this, and that right before I threw it, she had actually said repeatedly, I don't want to play this game anymore, please stop. And so I'm saying, well, that's certainly not true. And uh, Jenny's saying, that certainly is true. And Valerie is saying, I'm pretty sure her eye came out of her head for a second, (laughs) and maybe she put it back in, I don't know. And so my dad's sitting there and he's trying to decipher the truth in the midst of all of this chaos. And, and Jenny's version of the truth involves me getting maximum consequences possible, right? She just wants me to seriously pay for the scar on her face. My version of the truth involves no blame whatsoever, like a complete accidental release of a skimmer that somehow spun around in midair and ended up being redirected by Satan himself into her goggles. It was amazing, right? Right? So there's all these different versions of truth that we start going through, and in the midst of all of us talking about our own version of truth, the thing that I want us to realize this morning is that truth with a motive is not truth at all, right? Think about that for a second. When you you come into a situation and you have a version of truth, your version of truth with a motive is not actual truth. It's your version. And so the thing that I want to ask you and the thing that I want us to consider as we look at the text and move through it this morning is why do we think truth is relative? Why do we think truth is relative? And I think on some level, it's attached to this idea of people proclaiming truth with a motive. And so it's easier to say, well, it's relative. Truth is relative because we can't trust truth when it's influenced by the motives and desires of others. I want to submit to you that we think truth is relative because we believe that it provides us freedom. Think about that for a second. If truth is relative, then we think it can provide us freedom. Freedom from consequences, freedom from responsibility, Freedom from a lot of things, if truth is something that is static and something that is relative based on uh, experience and opinion, then it provides us some freedom, we think. If we can devi- define our own truth, we believe we can be free from the rules and restrictions of others. I said that weird, right? Rules. <laughs> I would have loved to be able to like misspeak and just move on, but I can't because the whole time I'm like, did I just say, Rules. If we can define our own truth, then we believe we can be free. We think that's freedom from the rules and restrictions of others. Basically, we, like Israel, want to avoid the consequences of our actions. Last week, we learned that the the vineyard that Isaiah was talking about in the verses prior to the one we're looking at this morning, prior to this morning's pericope, represent Israel. And so this vineyard represents Israel and God is the farmer. And although the farmer has gone above and beyond to do all things right, as we learned last week, the vineyard produces bitter grapes or stink fruit. If you were here last week, which represents Israel's sinful behavior. So God creates this perfect environment for Israel, the people of Israel, to flourish, to make good choices in order to, to live life to the fullest, and instead, the fruit of their life is stink fruit. It's sinful behavior. And so now, in this morning's passage, we see six woes, if you will. They're woe statements. And then four therefores, and you heard that as Eric read it a moment ago. In the original Hebrew, the word for woe is, is a word associated with funerals, interestingly enough. It basically means beware of judgment about to come on you. Woe. Beware of the judgment that's about to come upon you. And it's usually connected to funerals. So, woe here in context implies a death lies ahead. A death lies ahead as a result of their sins. The four therefores lay out the consequences. And so we have these woe statements with a therefore. So because this is is a decision you made that's leading ultimately to death, therefore, here are the consequences of your life. What's most tragic about this text this morning is that the consequences are avoidable. It doesn't need to be this way. And so at face value, we have a text of explaining the stink fruit, if you will, or the the sinful behaviors of Israel, and the impending consequences. So let's quickly do a, an overview of these six woes so that we can kind of understand in context what it is that Israel is in fact guilty of. We're going to read verse 8, but it's really the, the woe is connected to verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 says this, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Now, if you don't understand the context of you know, the law associated with, um, with Israel at the time, this might seem somewhat confusing, like, wow, God's really angry at them for making their houses bigger. <laughs> uh, the reality is there's a, a, a law that's connected to what's called the year of Jubilee. And so the year of Jubilee, according to Jewish law, required people that uh, had debt uh, owed them to, in the year of Jubilee to let the debtors free of the debt remaining. And so it provided this opportunity for people that were in need, for people that were poor, to be able to uh, move forward in what it is that uh, God would have for them. And so it's kind of this balancing of the, the nation of Israel that was the law. And so what we see here is Isaiah is talking about the fact that Judah has decided to go against the law of God. And instead of uh, giving people what it is that the Lord would determine is deserving them and the, the mercy that they deserve, instead, they're actually keeping their property. They're taking advantage of the poor, of the needy. And so they're basically being greedy. They're taking property and they're retaining it for themselves to make their homes larger, Verse 11 and 12 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. And so verses 11 and 12 are talking about sensual pleasures. And sensual pleasures, by definition, is any pleasure of the flesh. So sometimes we associate it with uh, maybe a sexual sin or something like that. But the reality is it's it's the idea of appeasing the desires of the flesh. If it feels good, if I want it, I'm going to do it. And that's what this portion of text is talking about. Verse 18 says, says this, it says that they, uh, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So cart ropes were something that was used in their society to literally pull carts closer to them. And so the wording of Isaiah is that literally you are drawing sinful activity closer to yourself. You're engaging in what you know to be sinful activity. And then verse 18 is actually daring God to do something about it. Like, hey, you know what, God, do what you got to do, but I'm having fun right now. We see in verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So we see this arrogance coming up in the nation of Israel. Verses 22 through 23 says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and uh, valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Talking about a text of corruption that's happening in the nation of Israel. Corruption and social injustice running rampant. Running rampant. And so the temptation here this morning as a preacher to be honest, to be transparent with you, it would be very easy for me to simply say, Let's go through these list of woes. Oh, you arrogant people. You make your houses bigger and there's poor people all around. The social injustice is ridiculous. So I could sit here and browbeat you really well with the text, completely uh, mishandling it for the purpose of some form of manipulation or authority. The reality is I can sit here and say, hey, don't do this stuff, but that wouldn't work. Right? I mean, if it would work, my goodness, then Israel would have been behaving. Because they knew the rules. They knew what was involved. So they knew very clearly what not to do, and yet they engaged in it. And quite honestly, I could convince you today what the rules say. And the reality is, is sin-filled people, we'd still engage in it. Because of our own depravity, because of the condition of the brokenness of mankind. And you may be tempted this morning to think, wow, these people were a mess. Like, as you read through it, you might be like, these guys, they were a real hot mess. I'm glad I'm nothing like that. (laughs) I'm so better behaved than they. But we're not. We're not. We're just as broken. We're just as greedy. We pursue the, the pleasures of our flesh. We engage in sinful activity. We're arrogant. We're corrupt. And we suppress the needy. In fact, if you think that you're better than the people of Israel, then you're struggling with self-righteousness and moral superiority. You see, that's a whole nother message. The reality is we're all sinners. We're all sinners. But you may have noticed if you're following the text that I skipped a woe. I only gave you five woes. There's a sixth. And it's because I believe that it reveals the root issue of what's beneath the obvious and face value of this portion of text. I think verse 20 kind of reveals the root of what's at play in the nation of Israel and what's at play even within our own hearts this morning. Verse 20 says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Israel was redefining truth. They were trying to redefine truth. Good is evil, evil is good. Light is dark, dark is light. In an attempt to justify their actions, they were attempting to redefine truth for their own benefit. Sound familiar? Redefining truth for our own benefit, here we are again. Truth is relative. Maybe we don't hear it in that phraseology, maybe we do. But this idea that there's no absolute truth so that we can then act the way we want and do what we want, I want to submit to you, freedom comes from truth. That may seem counterintuitive depending on your background, but bear with me as we unpack it a little bit this morning. Here's the problem. We live in a society where truth claims, just claims of truth, can be used for manipulation, right? Declaring truth can be more about control than anything else, especially when we know the truth well enough to leverage it for our own gain. Some, something, Saying something is true can be a power play for the purpose of manipulating a group of people or even an individual. I was raised in a church, and I saw a lot of this by well-intentioned spiritual people. It was about modifying behavior. This assumption that if we got people together in a church and we just convinced them of the depravity of their own lives, then maybe, just maybe, we could get them to behave. To what end? Like, what's the goal? To make them look spiritual, but inside they're depraved? Listen, when you come in here, look like you have it together. Because it makes me feel better about myself. I'm not sure the motive. They'd use scripture and the consequences of hell as a way of controlling people and modifying their behavior. And in time, I saw right through it because it was impossible. It was impossible to behave. I would come to this place and be like, there's no way everybody is behaving this well. I saw Mrs. So-and-so drop the F-bomb in the parking lot the other day. (laughs) And now here she is like telling me I can't say shut up. What is going on? This is inconsistent. This is hypocrisy. None of this is true, right? That's the world we live in. We we live in a world that looks at broken people that are trying to behave as people that are just putting on some type of a joke. It's exhausting. It's impossible. And it made me question everything. I became a skeptic and a cynic, all the while becoming the best behaved. Isn't that interesting? Sitting back and saying like, I'm not sure any of this is real. Like, it seems like there's so much inauthenticity. Yeah? Is that a word? Whew. All right. Looking at my wife, she's like, "Mm." (laughs) just taking up. Yep, that's one. And I'm looking around, but the whole time, it's so embedded in with me, in my heart and in my soul, because of the way that I was raised, that I am fearing hell, and I feel this tension to say, I must behave, I have to behave, and so all the while questioning everything, and yet being, hey, better than anyone else around, looking down on others with moral superiority. I can't believe I can't get their junk together. Are you kidding me right now? What a hot mess you are. Look at how good I am at faking this thing called spirituality. Here's the problem when it's about behavior modification and the twisting of truth, if you can't do it, you're crushed by it. If you can't behave well enough, you're crushed by it. And you say things like, I just, I don't know if I can be a Christian. I tried it, it's too hard. And for people that have an authentic relationship with God, you're like, it's too hard to engage with God? I don't understand. And what they're really saying is it's too hard to behave all the time. I can't do it. It's crushing me. So on the one side, you have this this crushing reality. But on the other side, you have people that are getting it done. I mean, they're behaving. And so on the other side, you're either crushed or you're filled with pride. Because if you can behave, I am so much better than them. I mean, look at me. I am impressive. And so we're filled with pride. It's a dangerous game. It's, it's an ugly side of the same coin. Here's the deal. Behavior modification is exhausting. I couldn't keep it up. I couldn't be my own savior. And so I was in college, ironically, going to school to become a pastor with all of these questions in my heart and mind. And I read a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind because for the first time in my spiritual life, I realized that I didn't have to check my brain at the door in order to have an authentic relationship with God. I saw someone that was uh, philosophical and intelligent writing a book that questioned so many things. And, and I was raised in a place where like, you don't question it, you just feel it. And I'm I'm not trying to villainize the way that I was raised at all. It was uh, the environment, and maybe it was partly my own interpretation of the environment. But it was—it felt very much like, listen, this is an experience, and if you feel it, it's valid. I have a question. Don't ask questions. Just worship God. Here comes the presence of the Lord. You know, and and for the first time, I read this book that seemed to. To question things. And in a conversation with one of my professors, he encouraged me to read um, The uh, Abolition of Men, Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. It's an easy read and uh, it talks a lot about truth, talks a lot about questions. And uh, it's a rather famous book. It's an easy read if you want to read it. But I got to the last chapter of the last page, last paragraph. And I actually have it on my phone, which is why I have my phone open in case you're wondering. <laughs> like, no, I just text while I talk sometimes. <laughs> I'm going to preach and, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> like, did he just post on Twitter? What is it? <laughs> I'm going to read something. And um, the last chapter of the last page of the book says this but you, can, but you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. I love that. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. Sorry, but the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. And maybe that doesn't have a profound impact on you today, but for me, I sat there and it hit me to my core because I had become a a skeptic and a cynic and I was seeing through everything and I was attempting to see through things to the point where I was seeing nothing at all. And if you try to see through everything, ultimately you will see nothing unless there's truth. If you're looking for truth, then you can see through deception and truth is revealed. You see, in attempting to see through things, I was missing the truth. And you may say, if you're in this category this morning, the truth is relative. In fact, you may say, I have the truth. And the truth is, there is no truth. Wait a second, what? Yeah, I have the truth. The truth is, there is no truth. You see, to declare that truth is relative is to declare a truth. And the argument became unraveled in my heart and mind quickly. To declare that truth is relative is to declare your own truth and therefore debunking the theory as a whole. And I am very much minimizing an entire philosophical way of thought. And I would encourage to have the conversation in the future. I can't do it justice this morning. With the time that I have today, I want to explore how this connects to today's text. You see, because Israel was redefining truth. Now there were consequences in verses 24 through 25. The wrath of God was coming on them because of their desire to redefine truth. And as I pursued truth, I discovered the well-meaning spiritual people in my church were misrepresenting God. And there have always been people using truth to manipulate and control. It's nothing new. It's a tale as old as time. I think that's a Disney movie. (laughs) But it's a tale as old as time. From the history of the world, people have been attempting to use some form of truth in order to manipulate and control. Jesus even confronted people in his day doing the same thing. They were called Pharisees. And they perverted the truth of God for the power that they could possess, misrepresenting God. And what did Jesus call them? Vipers, whitewashed tombs, a whitewashed tomb. A whitewashed tomb is so clean on the outside, but inside there's death, bone, and decay. You're so well-behaved on the outside, but you're dying inside. You're misrepresenting God. That's what Jesus said to them, and it opened up my mind. And this is why, this is what I want to say to some of you this morning. Don't formulate your theology around people that might be misrepresenting God. So often I come in contact with people that have, that have steered away from a loving, merciful, grace-filled Savior because of mean, angry, argumentative Christians, don't formulate your theology around people that may be misrepresenting God. You see, freedom comes from submission to the truth and embracing its restrictions. Again, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but let me give you an example. A fish out of water is not free. It's slowly dying. You can catch a fish and say, you know what? I'm sick of the restrictions this fish has lived in. Today is your day of liberation, my friend. No longer bound to the seas and the areas of algae. (laughs) Today, my friend, I release you to land. (laughs) Thus killing it. Right? Why? Because the truth is, fish need water to survive. A restriction. A restriction that provides freedom and flourishing. We think they're mutually exclusive. That that you can't possibly lean in to truth while being free. That if you submit to truth, oh, there goes my freedom. Why is that? It's interesting, isn't it? We don't function that way in in other areas of life, but in our spiritual life, there's this tension. Tension. You see, truth, in order to be truth, can't be driven by opinion. Can't be driven by opinion. So, a young little lad I was, and my mom looked at me and said, you can be anything you want to be. What a well-intentioned lie. You see, because at that moment I wanted to be Superman. I cannot be anything I want to be. Why do we tell this to our children? (laughs) Listen, you can be anything you want to be. Don't tell them that. That really messes with their heads, right? But in our Americanized Western society, we're like, listen, I'm going to give you hope and vision. And I'm going to speak truth into your life. Listen, my parents put limitations on me. But you, you can be anything you want to be. I want to be a fish, mommy. You can be anything you want to be, right? And in the back of your mind, you're like, you'll grow out of that junk. So you don't really mean that. They can't be anything they want to be. I can't be anything I want to be. I cannot be a Broadway singer. (laughs) Why is that funny? (laughs) I can't. I can't be a Broadway singer. But here's the deal. What if, what if my parents were like, you can be anything you want to be? And I thought, Broadway, here I come. And I redirected the rest of my life in pursuit of a dream that makes absolutely no sense because I don't possess the gifting necessary. No matter how hard I work, no matter how much time I spend, no matter how much I restrict my life, and I discipline myself, I'm going to try harder. Me, 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 me. (laughs) I'm going to do it, Mom. I'm moving to New York City. (laughs) Today's the day. She's like, honey, why did we tell this idiot that he could be anything? And there I am, the subway, wearing a white tutu, tears streaming down my face. Anyway, (laughs) didn't happen. But the point is this. When it comes to truth, freedom comes with restriction. You see, for someone that does have a musical gift, when we watch them restrict their lives and discipline themselves, to grow in what they are gifted in, they amaze us. Isn't that interesting? They're finding freedom by restriction. We call it discipline. They've found their truth, and then they're restricting themselves in order to find the fullest version of their life. We do this all the time. But within our spiritual lives, we think, no, God doesn't have a plan for me. And so therefore, the idea of restriction feels like limitation. It doesn't feel like freedom. But what if? What if God knit you together in your mother's womb? What if he knew you? What if he made you for a purpose? What if he had a plan for you? Freedom comes from submission to the truth and embracing its restrictions. The question is, Is the gospel truth or opinion? That's the thing you have to decide this morning. In love relationships, we're willing to surrender freedom, right? But it must be both people. Some of you know the pain of a one-sided surrender, right? Maybe you surrendered, but your spouse, loved one, isn't willing to surrender. They're not willing to surrender their control. And so it becomes manipulating, dehumanizing. You feel exploited. Why? Because they have a motive and they're leveraging the relational value against you to manipulate and control you. And so um, an often misrepresentation of who God is, is that one way perspective. This idea that God's up in heaven saying, listen, behave. Behave. And we have to submit and lose our freedom. And we fear being exploited and dehumanized. And so we think, I I don't know that I can do that. It seems like, man, it seems like religion is for weak-minded people, but that's not the truth. The truth is, it's both ways. God and his infinite love for you and for me went first. You see, Jesus went to a cross, and he lost his freedom for you. He was exploited. He lost his independence for you. Will you surrender to him? You see, if that's true, if it's true that Jesus lived the sinless life that we could not, that if he lived the perfect life that literally crushes us, that he followed all the rules on our behalf and died the death that we deserve, that he literally drank the cup of wrath that Isaiah is talking about on our behalf. If that is true, it demands that we live differently. Not because we're conjuring up the effort, but because we're allowing the truth to transform our hearts and our minds, and it produces fruit. Not stink fruit, but the fruit of the spirit. You see, what's tried is rules and behavior modification. And that results in slavery. I'm going to try harder. Listen, I'll never do that again. I promise I won't until I do. And then I'll promise harder next time. It results in slavery. But the truth is a person It's not a concept. The truth is a person named Jesus Christ. And the gospel brings freedom. If we are free from the wrath of God and the consequences of our own sin, because of the mercy and grace of God, it sets us free. To live the life that God created us to live. To to dream God dreams. To believe for what it is that we could do as we partner on mission with what God has intended in our families, in our communities, so that the gospel could go forward. Not for our own gain, not for some form of manipulation or control, but in an amazing surrender of our hearts and minds to say, God, your will, not mine. Jesus took the wrath and the consequences, Isaiah articulates. While we were enemies of God, not once we behaved well enough. While we were a hot mess, enemy of God, sinner, Jesus went and died the death that we deserve. He took the consequences of verse 24 and 25. Some of us need to award ourselves the grace and mercy that God makes available. We, like the Israelites, have to realize freedom is found in submission to truth. And that will transform our behavior. When we engage the truth of the gospel, the outflow is transformation within our lives. And so often we flip flop it and say, you know what? If I just behave well enough, then God will love me enough, and then I'll get it. Never works. If we'll submit to the truth, it will transform our behavior for his glory and our joy. We walk in mercy so we're able to award mercy. That's the intention. We we are awarded grace and mercy so that we can extend that. And so this morning, I don't want you to, to look at this pericope at this text and just say, okay, here's all these woes. These are all the things I promise I'll never do so that I can avoid this terrible thing called hell. Listen, it's not about doing, it's about accepting what Christ has done and embracing the truth of who Jesus is and allowing it to transform every relationship and interaction we have. And it sounds risky, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, what if I'm still a sinner? (laughs) Yeah. We're all sinners saved by grace. Right, That's what scripture tells us. We're sinners saved by grace. And so let's embrace that reality and extend grace and mercy to others around us. We say every week here that the text requires something from us. And so I want to challenge you this morning as we draw things to a close and begin to consider what response looks like, I want to ask you this question. Who will I extend mercy to? I want you to consider that as an application this morning. As you leave this place, who will I extend mercy to? It's a multiple faceted response, right? Because for some of us in this room, the person you have to extend mercy to is yourself. And what I mean by that is, is a surrender to who it is that God says you are and a surrender maybe to God. If you're in this room this morning and you have not crossed that line of salvation, you haven't asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life, maybe that's your application this morning, to acknowledge the fact that you don't have to just continue at your best efforts to try and be more spiritual, but actually rest in who God says you are and allow that to transform every area and facet of your life. If that's you this morning, it's as simple as praying a prayer, asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and be the Lord and leader of your life love to have a conversation with you if you decide to pray that prayer today. For others of us in this room, maybe you've crossed that line of faith. You're questioning what application looks like for you, and maybe for you, the application looks like forgiving others. That there's this tendency to, to keep a list of wrongs, a list of hurts, a sense of control, If I forgive, then I'm releasing some form of control. I'm almost validating their actions. But this morning, the text is saying, listen, if you are going to walk in the grace and the mercy that God has awarded you, how dare you refrain that from others? Would you be a person that extends grace and mercy? A person that allows the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in their lives because you've been transformed by the truth of the gospel, not because of your own efforts to conjure up spirituality or best behavior, because that never works, but instead resting in the reality of who God is and allowing it to transform every relationship. For others of you this morning, maybe you're like, listen, I've surrendered my life and I function the best that I can, extending grace and mercy to others. And I want to challenge you this morning that maybe your application is to live on mission in a different way, to extend mercy in a way that can partner with the church in areas of social injustice, in areas of reaching those that are lost, people that have not ever been extended any type of grace and mercy, and you are a voice of truth to extend to them, listen, you're loved. There's a God that loves you right where you're at. I don't know who you are, where you're at currently in your spiritual journey, but I know this, The text requires something for every single one of us. To simply attend church and to leave having attended it without it wrecking you a little is simply missing it altogether. So what does it require of you this morning? Let's bow our heads. As you bow your heads, whether you close your eyes or keep them open, that's fine, it's up to you. But as you bow your heads this morning, I want you to consider what your application looks like. What is it that the Lord is asking of you? What does the text require of you this morning? We're going to go into a time of response. We sing some songs, just respond to the Lord in a form of worship because of who he is and what he's done. And as we go into that time of response, I want to challenge you to consider what the application is for you, what it is that the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart, to your mind, Maybe the person that you need to forgive. And maybe you don't even have to forgive them to their face. Maybe it's something within your heart and mind where you're carrying something that they don't even know and you just need to lay it down. And say, okay, enough is enough. I don't know what it is, but I know the Lord wants to do something today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you... Search our hearts this morning. Would you search our hearts and put your finger on the the thing that we need to direct our attention to? Father, we're so thankful for what it is that you've done for us, but we know that that what you have done for us is not a, a get out of jail, get out of hell free card. It's so much more that we would live on mission, that we would participate in the redemptive narrative that you're writing in the lives of everyone we walk past, every sphere of influence that we walk into, whether it be our workplace, our our classrooms, whatever it is, Lord, that, that you're speaking to our hearts and minds, we simply declare ourselves available. We respond to you this morning.